All right, Hebrews chapter number 10, we're going to read the first four verses. The Word of God says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So the first thing that the writer of Hebrews addresses is the shadows of the past age. The Old Testament law was never a substance. It was always a shadow. We learned this when we studied about the tabernacle in chapter number 9, that the tabernacle was patterned after heavenly things. And everything that was contained within the tabernacle was merely a, a, a shadow or merely a representation of the real and the substantial thing that was in heaven. And we believe that because our Bible teaches it. I believe it with all my heart that there was a table of showbread here on earth and it was modeled after the one in heaven. Uh, There was a candlestick. We call it a menorah sometimes that was here on earth, modeled after the one in heaven and so on and so forth. And, of course, the book of Revelation bears this out. Last time the Ark of the Covenant is ever mentioned in your Bible, it's mentioned as being seen in God's heaven in Revelation. Uh, and I don't believe that is the, the ark that was here on earth. Uh, I don't suppose I could say with scriptural authority it wasn't, but I don't believe it was the one that was here on earth. And I know everybody's thinking, wonder what happened to that ark. I don't know. I wish I could tell you, but I can't. But I believe that it's the one in heaven that is viewed in Revelation. Uh, so uh, that, that's borne out through the testimony of Scripture. Well, in the same way, the sacrifices were also merely shadows that the Bible says were of good things to come. Now, this is important to understand. Uh, particularly in the context of who that the Hebrews writer is, is talking to. Now, remember, as you study the Bible, one of the most important things you can ascertain about any book of the Bible is who it's written to and when it's written and why it's written. A lot of truth in the Word of God that may have application to us, but as we interpret the Word of God faithfully, we have to acknowledge it wasn't written to us, maybe written for us, but it wasn't written to us. The book of Hebrews is part of the Hebrew Christian epistles. It was written to uh, Jewish individuals in the first century. Uh, I believe that we're at the door. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that as we come to the end of this chapter. What do we mean by at the door? Well, here they are, and they have Judaism behind them. They have the Christian life before them. They're standing here at the cross of Calvary, and the decision must be made. And Paul does not take for granted who he's writing to. Uh, as you read through the book of Hebrews, he'll, he'll be talking about how that they have been perfected forever and how that they are secure and how that uh, he knows that they are not of those that turn back and so on and so forth. And yet he still ushers and offers warnings to those that would turn back. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Does that mean a person can lose their salvation? No. When he says they've been perfected forever, I don't know what your definition of forever for is, but my definition of forever is forever. But I think what he's doing is not taking for granted the, the sole situation of the person he's writing to. And he's saying, listen, I'm writing this to Jewish individuals that have believed on Christ. But there will be some that read this that have not believed on Christ, that they are being convicted, they are being dealt with, they are at the door, but they have not believed on Christ. And so he exhorts them, don't turn back. Instead, believe effectually on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you consider that, Remember that as he's writing to these Jewish individuals, they have esteemed the Old Testament law and the sacrifices as the very epitome and axiom of revelation. And he's saying to them, don't you understand that you are in the kindergarten of God's revelation? 
that sacrifices were never intended to be permanent. And he shows this by their sad imperfection. Notice it again. He says in verse 1, he says, Not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Then I love the common sense of the Bible. You won't find a more common sense book than the Bible. It says in verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Hey, how are those working for you? How are those sacrifices working out? Are they perfecting you? Are they forgiving you? Are they changing you? No. Because year by year they would have to come back. He said, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. So he points to their sad imperfection. Then notice their serious implication. So why did they give them? What was the purpose? Why did God command them to? Verse 3, it says, but in those sacrifices... There is a remembrance again made of sins every year. You'll find this to be true, that Judaism today... By the way, we just passed Yom Kippur. I don't know if you know that, uh, but Friday evening into, into Saturday uh, was Yom Kippur for the Jewish people. And Yom Kippur is their name for the Day of Atonement, the day that in Old Testament times the high priest would have gone into the Holy of Holies and made a sacrifice. And I was listening to a Jewish individual talk about Yom Kippur. And he was saying that they, they have like a 25-hour fast that they do and they recite their sins over and over again. He, he said it's it's a day of remembrance for the sins that we've committed. And that's fascinating to me because the person I was listening to would reject what Paul wrote here in Hebrews. He would reject the notion of Christ as the Messiah. But even he understood that the sacrifices couldn't take away sin. They would atone. They would cover them. But every year there was a remembrance made again. The high priest would step out, place his hands over the sacrifice, and would recite the sins of the people to them over and over again. An illustration I heard that was pretty good of this is imagine a businessman decides he's going to take out a loan to start a business and he goes to a bank and he lays out his plan for how this business is going to be profitable. And he has a wealthy friend that comes in as a guarantor and signs and he's the endorser of the note. And the bank lays out all of the, you know, details, uh, you know, how much interest and what the term is that it has to be paid back. and He has to pay this loan back in a year. And uh, so the money is given. And over the next year, the man doesn't turn a profit. He doesn't make a single thing off of it. And so the end of the term comes up, and he comes back to the bank. He goes in and he says, look, I believe I can still make a profit, but I've not made any so far, and I can't pay any of my debt. And so the bank, they draw up new papers and draw up a loan for another year and staple that to the back of the first one. And year by year, this happens. And they go back, but the debt is never paid because he doesn't have what it takes to pay the debt. But the reason the bank keeps giving the loans is because the one that endorses the note says, come sooner or later, I'm going to pay this debt. But the, the going into the bank and the taking of new loans, that doesn't secure the, 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 that doesn't pay off the debt. That doesn't take care of the debt problem. But there's always this confidence that there's going to be one that's going to come along later and pay the debt. Aren't you glad there was one that came along later and paid the debt? There was a sacrifice made, but it was just a, a remembrance that was given year after year. And then in verse 4, he points to a simple impossibility. He says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And this question must be asked. If God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and what value could he see in the blood of bulls and of goats? Didn't satisfy him. It was never God's intention that he be satisfied with the blood of bulls and of goats. We gave the illustration last week of a checkbook. Uh, has it ever dawned on you the ludicrous nature of walking into a business and 
gathering up a bunch of goods. Let's say you're at a grocery store, gathering up a buggy full of groceries and turning around and walking out and giving a piece of paper to the person at the front and saying, here, this is for my groceries. But you see, it's not that that paper has value intrinsically, but it's that there's a bank that stands behind it and there's a payment coming. And in the same way, God was never satisfied with the blood of bulls and of goats, but they pointed to a greater sacrifice that was coming. And this is where he comes to in the next few verses. He talks about the shape of the present age. And if I, if I describe it, I describe it this way. He, he gives us certain truths that we need to understand, and we need to understand the Old Testament sacrifices in light of them. Look at verse number 5. He says, Wherefore, when he, it's talking about Christ, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice, an offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. God didn't have pleasure in them. They didn't pay the debt. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. I want you to consider with me the miracle connected with the descent of God's Son. First off, we see there was a body fashioned by God from heaven. Verses 5 and 6. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Has it ever dawned on you the sheer miracle that it is that Christ was incarnate and robed in flesh? John Wesley said it this way, that God's eternal Son in all of His magnitude and glory, the God that, that, that measured out the universe in the span of His hand, was contracted to the span of a virgin's womb, was robed in flesh for you and I. That in and of itself is a miracle that we should, it should never be lost on us. We're coming into Christmas here and I don't know, too, too few weeks. I don't know how many it is. If you've been around any length of time, you know I'm, I'm a Grinch when it comes to Christmas, but... Christmas is coming up, and for all of the things that we celebrate, let us never lose the magnitude of the incarnation of Christ. That's what Christmas is about. It's not just about mangers and wise men. It's not just about shepherds and, and stars. And I'm not saying those things don't have their place and shouldn't be rejoiced in and preached about. But the great truth of the birth of Christ was His incarnation, that a body hast thou prepared for me. But then notice there's a book that's spoken about. Verse number 7, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Now, what book is he talking about? Well, he's quoting from Psalms chapter 40 in these verses. Uh, three different times he quotes from Psalms chapter 40. And I don't think it should be lost on anyone that the book that's being spoken of is the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Uh, the Bible is its own best commentary. Amen. And so when he says a book, he's talking about the book that he's quoting from. He's talking about the Word of God. And notice three things that were foretold. First off, Christ's coming was foretold in the Old Testament. We find many examples of this. We talked a little bit about it. In fact, on Sunday when we was preaching on the Good Shepherd, how that it was prophesied that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would uh, be born of the tribe of Judah, that he would be born a descendant of David. Uh, so many of the prophecies of Christ concern his birth. And it should be no surprise to us uh, that angels attended the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were bearing witness both with Scripture and with the, the, the testimony and witness of heaven to those prophecies being fulfilled. So verse 7, he says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me 
to do thy will, O God. Verse 8, his cross is foretold. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. In other words, the Old Testament spoke of the insufficiency of the sacrifices. And again, this is something that was lost on Jews in the day that Paul is writing, but was not lost on Israel of old. They understood intrinsically, instinctively, they understood that the law was not a perfect matter. The law could not keep them from rebelling. The law could not keep them from sinning. They understood the law to be an external thing that could not touch the internal mechanisms of man's heart. But the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, it could satisfy and did satisfy God. Then verse 9, the competence of Christ is foretold. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. These sacrifices couldn't do the will of God. What was the will of God? The will of God, and we learn this from Christ's own words in the Gospel of John, uh, the will of him that sent me is that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The will of God was that men might come to know him in a personal way. And the law could never do this. The sacrifices always, despite whatever beauty and imagery they may have held, they could not make the comers thereunto perfect. They could not bring them into fellowship with God. Before we end this chapter, we'll see that Christ did that very thing. Uh, they could not. Uh, but he said, he taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Christ got the job done. So we see the miracle connected with the descent of God's Son. And then we notice verses 10 through 12, the miracle connected with the decease of God's Son. In verse 10 it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, let me say a quick word about what sanctification means. Uh, sanctification, at its, very, at its very heart, means this, to set apart and to cleanse. Sometimes in the Bible, sanctification will weigh more heavily on the notion of being cleansed. Sometimes sanctification in the Bible will weigh more heavily on the concept of being set apart. And we'll actually see both of those things in this chapter tonight. But what it means in a comprehensive way, sanctify means to be cleansed and set apart for a distinct purpose. Well, what secures our sanctification? The cross of Christ does. By the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, notice this phrase, once for all. You'll find this theme over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Once for all. He gave himself an offering for sin. Now what? Look what it says in verse number 11 and 12. I like this. Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So our security is assured by the crown of the Lord Jesus. We never have to worry that we're going to fall into condemnation again. How do we know that? Because Christ won't have to give a second offering. He's already sat down at the right hand of God. And one fellow said it this way, man, I thought this was about shouted. I was riding in the car today, and they're sitting in the car at the grocery store about shouted on this. It says, the priests stand, but Christ sat down. All through the Old Testament, the priests, there were no chairs in the, in the tabernacle. All the furniture, there was a table, there were several, uh, there was a couple of altars, there was a candlestick, there was an ark, but you won't find any chairs in the tabernacle. You know why? Because the priests could never sit down. Their work was never done. Only one priest in the Old Testament is ever recorded as uh, sitting down, and that's Eli. Eli sat down in uh, a failed work. 
his home was a failure, his priesthood was a failure, his witness was a failure. Eli sat down because of a failed work. Christ sat down because of a finished work. He sat down because there was no more work to be done. He's not going back to the cross. Now listen, he's not on the cross. He's not in the cracker. He's, he's crowned and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not to be made a sacrifice anymore. He has sat down on the right hand of God. But then I want you to notice not only the shadows of the past age and the shape of the present age, but notice the shores of a promised age. Verses 13 through 18. Look at verse 13 in particular. The Bible says, From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So in other words, now the writer of Hebrews, he's been looking at past things, and he's looked at some present realities, but now he's looking at some perspective things, and he points to the expectation of a perfect reign for the Christ. He says, Jesus Christ, he's just waiting now. One of these days, the bride is going to be caught up. And the, the march of God's prophetic calendar will continue on for this world until it ends with Christ seated on the throne of David. He is expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. But then notice the second, and that ought to give us encouragement. Oh, man, let me tell you something. In a world that's going crazy, it ought to bless us to know that pretty soon we're not going to have to worry about congressmen and senators and representatives and presidents and judges and lawyers. There's going to be a king sitting on the throne. And he's going to rule in authority. The expectation of a perfect reign for the Christ. Then verse 14 through 18 deal with the experience of a perfect redemption for the Christian. Look at verse 14. The Bible says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is what we call positional perfection. I don't have time to deal with it heavily, but every truth that relates to the salvation of the believer has two aspects. A positional and a practical. Practical deals with how we live. Positional deals with how God judicially chooses to see us. Right now, God in a judicial sense, that doesn't mean God's not aware of my imperfections. He is. But He chooses to treat me as though I were as perfect as the Son of God. I have been perfected forever. And He used that term, then, that are sanctified. He's dealing with cleansing. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We have a new condition. Look at verse 15. We have a new confidence. It says, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. So our confidence is based in the fact that God has taken up residence in our hearts and lives by the Holy Ghost. Uh, listen, I, and it reminds me when Christ was sailing on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And he went down and bedded down in the bottom of the boat. And, uh, you know, I was thinking a little bit on that today, and they began to cry out to him. And when he gets up and calms the storm, he says, oh, ye of little faith. And I thought, why did they have little faith? They prayed to him. Uh, they cried to him. Isn't that faith? And certainly it is faith to pray. But the reason they had little faith is they didn't realize that that boat couldn't sink while Jesus was on board. In the same way, believer, listen, the Holy Ghost has took up residence eternally in us if we've been saved. Uh, Christ said, he'll be in you and he shall not leave you, shall not forsake you. As such, if God's going to condemn us as believers, he has to condemn the Holy Ghost along with us. He has taken up resident. Hey, don't let that make you uncomfortable. That's Bible truth. If he's going to send us to hell, he'd have to send the Holy Ghost to hell. We've been saved because the Holy Ghost has taken up permanent residency in us. We have a new confidence. Then he speaks about a new covenant. Now, I wish I could say a bunch about this, but time won't let me. But Luke verse 16. It says, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. This is quoting from the book of Jeremiah. Saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It's interesting. It's a blessing to think about the fact that whenever Jeremiah wrote this, he wrote this about the Jews. But you and I, as Gentile believers, we're part of that wild olive branch that's been grafted into that covenant that God made with the Jewish people. And uh, there's been some of those branches of the Jews that have been trimmed away. The Jewish nation has not been cast off. But certainly Jews can choose whether to accept Christ or not and choose whether to have a part in that covenant by believing on Christ that's spoken of here. So when Jeremiah, by interpretation, speaks about it, he's talking about the Jewish nation. But by application, the Holy Ghost draws us Gentiles into it, too, as believers. And we, as wild olive branches, are grafted into that same covenant promise. He says, God's made a covenant with you. Listen, my salvation is not based on my uh, devotion, my confidence, my ability. My salvation is dependent on the covenant of God. God's made a promise to me. That's what I'm trusting in. In fact, God didn't just make a covenant with me. God made a covenant with himself and brought me into it. Uh, That's what my salvation is depending on. Now, stop and look at the common sense of this next verse. Let let me read verse 17 and 18 again, okay? And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. In other words, if there's no remembrance of sin then why would there need to be a re-offering of sacrifice? It's just common sense that if God has pledged that he has judicially chosen to treat us as though we have been perfected forever, to, uh, to uh, award us the status of God's precious Son, if we've been made a child of God, and if we are treated in Christ Jesus, and Christ has put away sin, then why would there be need for a sacrifice? This is the place where things like uh, like communion, and when we speak about communion, I, I mean distinctly the notion of transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the idea that the communion wafer becomes the body and blood of Christ, along with things like crucifixes. And listen, if you've got a crucifix in your house, I don't think God's going to come blow your house down like the big bad wolf. But this is where they do become a particular offense when we think about them theologically. The notion that Christ is still on the cross. Hey, listen, he's already come off the cross. He perfected forever. Once for all sin, once for all time, he has made a sacrifice for our sins. So he speaks about the shores of the promised age. Now notice second thought here. What was taught by Christ's sacrifice? Look at verse 19. We'll read down to verse number 22. Now, there are three main thoughts that are associated with the rest of this chapter. Uh, There is a tremendous word of welcome in verses 19 through 25. Uh, There is a terrible word of warning, verses 26 through 31. That's one of those parenthetical passages. And then there is a timely word of wisdom from verse 32 down to verse number 39. Look at verse number 19. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want you to consider, first off, the great reality that he speaks of. And that great reality is that we have access. Access. Now, to you and I, this may get lost on us. I'm just being honest, because we live in a day where we have been constantly taught growing up 
that it is simple to approach unto God. And that's true. It is simple. We approach unto him in faith. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't say it was easy on the flesh. It's not easy on the flesh to trust Christ. But it is simple to trust Christ. All we must do is look and live, believe and be saved. That's all we have to do. But to these individuals he was writing to, they had lived their entire life being taught that it was an arduous, complicated, and limiting thing to come into the presence of God. Notice first off the place of access in verse number 19. It says, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And he's speaking about the holy of holies, that place where the Ark of the Covenant stood. I read a little story that I thought was good, and I wasn't going to give it, but I'm I'm going to anyway. (laughs) This is one of those points. You know, sometimes when I've taught like 15 minutes over, I sit there and think, how did I do that? This is one of those points that might cause that. I'm just warning you. But um, uh, an illustration was given. You imagine a Moabite of old standing on the hillside and beholding, looking down into the valley and seeing the tabernacle set up there wondering what that meant, who these strange people were called Israelites, and what that cloud was that hovered over the back of that tent structure. And he goes down and he walks up to the outer court, and there's this large barrier of of white linen cloth, taller than he is, and he works his way around and comes to a big, beautiful gate of blue, purple, and scarlet, and there stands a man watching over it. He says to him, I've come to come in and see what's back here. And the fellow says, no, no, I'm sorry. Who are you? He knows that an Israelite would know he's permitted to go in. And so he says, who are you? He says, well, I'm a Moabite. He says, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to be in this tent. Moabites were forbidden uh, from entrance to the 10th generation. I'm sorry, you can't come in here. He says, oh, I wish that uh, I could go in there. He says, well, now, if you'd been born an Israelite, maybe of the tribe of Judah or of the tribe of, of uh, Benjamin or Dan, you could come in. He says, oh, man, I wish I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I wish I was born an Israelite and could go in there. And he looks back and he sees that big tent sitting back there, 45 by 15 foot. He can see it, 15 foot tall sitting back there. And he says, what's in that tent back there? And the fellow says, oh, well, that's a place we call the holy place. And uh, in there, there's some furniture, there's a candlestick, and there's an altar of incense, and there's a table of showbread. And the high priest, he goes in, and he trims the candlestick, and he uh, eats of the showbread, and he offers prayers and sacrifices to God on that altar of incense. And the fellow says, oh, I wish I was an Israelite and I could go in there. The fellow says, well, listen, even if you were an Israelite, you couldn't go in there. Only those that were born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron, only they could go in there. And he looks as the curtain is pushed aside and he sees a beautiful veil that just for a glimpse of a moment exposes itself. And he says, hey, what's at the back of there? The fellow says, well, you know, I'm not a Levite. I I can't really tell you, but I'm told that it's a place called the Holy of Holies. And in there is a chest that contains some of the most precious holy articles that uh, God has used to minister to our people. And in there, we can go, and that cloud sitting over it, that's the Shekinah glory of God. God sits down on a place called the mercy seat and meets with His people. The fellow says, oh, I wish I could go in there. If I was an Israelite, I could go in there. If I was a Levite, I could go in there. The fellow says, no, actually, if you were a Levite, you couldn't. Only one man gets to go in there. He has to be the high priest. Only he gets to go in there. The fellow says, man, I wish I was born in Israel out of the tribe of Levi and was a high priest. And I could go, I'd go in there every day and I'd pray and, and fellowship and worship with God. And he'd say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not true. Actually, the high priest can only go in there one day a year and he can only be in there a short time. That's how limited access to God was. Surely that Moabite would throw up his hands and say, that's a God I can never get to. 
Paul looks at us and says, brethren, having boldness to enter in. Or we can enter into the very presence of God. We can go in and out of the presence of God. Like those sheep in that fold, we can go in and out and find pasture. We can go into His presence. We can dwell in the glory of God. What a place. But notice there's a dreadful price that's mentioned in verse 20. By a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. That veil, an entire 12 weeks could be done just looking at that veil. Probably all of eternity we'd sit and look at that veil and learn things about Jesus. But the Holy Ghost says that veil was a picture of the flesh of Christ. That veil had all manner of ornate, beautiful stitch work of cherubs on it. And that bore testimony to the fact that angels witnessed over and, and presided over the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it had three colors. It had blue, it had red, scarlet, it's what the Bible calls it, and it has purple. There's a lot of things we can learn about that. Uh, blue can be associated with the priesthood and scarlet with sacrifice and purple with royalty. And certainly Christ came and ministered to us in all three of those aspects. He was made a sacrifice for us. He sits as our high priest and he's our coming king. It also reminds us something about the way in which he came. Blue is associated with the heavens. It speaks of the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Red is associated with man. In fact, the name Adam comes from a, a root that, that means red. And it deals with the idea of humanity. And not only was Christ 100% God, but He was also 100% man. Say, preacher, what does the purple mean? Well, if you were to take blue and red and mix them together in such a way that you couldn't tell where the red began and where the blue began, and it was just one unbroken, beautiful, harmonious whole, you'd have a picture of what it was when Jesus became flesh. 100% God, 100% man. You couldn't tell where the humanity began and where the divinity began. Uh, you'd just see Him as the Son of God. He could, he could bed down in the bottom of a boat because He was tired, because He was man. But He could get up and lift His hand and stop the sea because He was God. He could sit down by a well side because he was weary and asked for a drink of water from a Samaritan woman. But then he could turn and tell her things that no man had ever told her because he was God. That flesh, that, that righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ provided a barrier for mankind approaching unto God. Because forever, if Christ's standard is perfection and Christ met that standard, then all that veil would be is a reminder that we're not as good as him. But the Bible says this, that that veil in Matthew, whenever Christ died on the cross, was rent in twain. Like with, uh, without hands, but the Bible says, from the top to the bottom. Whenever Christ had paid the awful price for our sins, God, with His divine hands, reached from the heavens and tore that veil in two, saying, I'm satisfied. Access has been made. We might say it this way. He looked at all of sinful man and said, if you'll come by Jesus and come on in, because you are accepted in the Beloved. Verse 21 gives us the proof of this access. He says, and having an high priest over the house of God. How do we know we can go in there? Because Jesus is in there. Because we have a high priest. Jesus is the only high priest that could ever take anybody into the holiest with Him. He was the only one righteous enough that His righteousness wasn't just righteous for His own sake, but when He died for our sins, that righteousness was imputed unto us. And we go in with His righteousness. There's a great reality spoken of, but then there's a great responsibility in light of that. Three times the writer uses the term, let us. He's speaking of believers. 
And he says as believers that we have three types of responsibility. First, there is a Godward responsibility in verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says we need to approach unto God in the purity of worship. And that means to come before God in a conscientious manner. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. When we go to God, we need to go to God based on the finished work of Christ. I'm going to be honest with you. There's times when I'm so far in the doghouse in my own heart and conscience that I don't feel like I ought to go to God. But the truth is, it'll never be made right if I don't go to God. So in those moments, I don't come in the confidence of my feelings, but I come in the covenant of faith, knowing that Christ has done the work and I can come in with a full heart, uh, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And then it means coming with confidence. It says having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He speaks of being cleansed. Now, remember, to the Jewish individual, when he talks about sprinkling, he ain't talking about baptism. A Jewish individual wouldn't have had a clue what she was talking about when you talked about baptism. When they talked about sprinkling, they were talking about the purification that took place in the Old Testament over unclean things uh, through the sprinkling of the water of the ashes of the red heifer. That's how they became ceremonially cleansed. And everything was cleansed either by blood or by water. There's a lot to be said, by the way, about John chapter number 3. Uh, and when he says, they've got to be born again of water and of the Spirit. But uh, he says that uh, you've got to come with your heart uh, sprinkled. Let me read it again. I don't want to misquote it. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We come to God because we know Christ has cleansed us. There is a positional cleansing there. Our hearts have been cleansed from an evil conscience. But notice there's a practical cleansing we need when we approach unto God. He says our bodies washed with pure water. If a person was unclean in the Old Testament, they'd be expelled from the camp. But they could come in if they bathed themselves in that water with the ashes of the uh, red heifer. But then we see in verse 23, there is a manward responsibility, or a selfward, excuse me, responsibility. He talks about the possibility of wavering. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So in light of this finished work of Christ, you know what we ought to do? We ought, we ought to hold fast our profession. Listen, I know we live in a world that constantly assails and berates our faith. But any time we begin to feel ourselves wavering in our confidence of the truth of the Word of God, go back to Calvary. Anytime we find ourselves wavering in the, our confidence in the gospel to save and change sinners, let us go back to Calvary. And let us always remember that we have a responsibility to stand fast in our faith and in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And then there's a manward responsibility. He talks about the priority of works in verse 24. He says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. To provoke unto love and to good works. One commentator said it this way. He talked about growing up in a home that had fireplaces in every room. And uh, a lot of times when it was cold, they'd keep a big fire stoked up in the big fireplace in the living room. And he said you'd be watching and there'd be embers and, and pieces of, of coal or charcoal or, you know, charred pieces of stick that would be in that fire. And he said directly there'd be one sometimes that would become dislodged and, and roll off to the side. And at first it would be glowing bright orange. Before long it would begin to diminish. And if it didn't get back close to the fire, it wouldn't be long. It would be cold enough to grab it with your hand. I sort of believe that's what the Hebrews writer is talking about here. It says we need other believers. Listen, it ain't all about you. There's other folks depending on you. 
And you're not in this thing on your own. When you find yourself struggling, depend on other people. Uh, Listen, God has put us in a local church, a body of believers. If we could go it alone, Christ wouldn't have loved the church and gave himself for it. There's a purpose and place for the assembly. And that's what he speaks about. He says we have great responsibility as believers, but also as brethren. In verse 25, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Listen, you need church more than church needs you. And church does need you. I'm not saying you're not needed, but you need church just as much or more than church needs you. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I hear people say all the time, preacher, it's just life's getting so busy. No, life's not getting busy. Jesus is coming back. You're looking at it wrong. It's easy to say, I can't be at church, preacher, I can't go to this or to that because life's just getting so busy. No, you're looking at it wrong. Uh, Life may be getting busy, but life's also fleeting because Jesus is coming soon. We ought not be going to church less because times are getting tougher. We ought to be going to church more because times are getting tough. So much the more as you see the day approaching. But then he speaks not only a a, a, a tremendous word of welcome, But he speaks to us a terrible word of warning. And I'm going to do my best to explain this uh, while also trying to move a little quickly through it. But I know this is is important verses that we need to spend a little time with. Now remember, this is the fourth warning. The title of it is Despising the Spirit of God. And there are judicial consequences. Now let me frame this very quickly for you. Because you're going to struggle understanding some of these verses. Now remember, you can't... Use Scripture against Scripture. The same Holy Ghost that wrote earlier on in this chapter that he has perfected forever them which are sanctified in verse number 14 is the same Holy Ghost that says later on in this chapter uh, that they have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. You can't pit Scripture one against another. When it seems as though you come across two Scriptures that seem to contradict. You've got to stop and back up and say, what if I misunderstood? God's not wrong. God's always right. So the person that is, this warning is being written to is described for us later on down in verses 38 and 39. He says this, verses 38 and 39. We'll come back to this a little later. But he says, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. He's talking about two different types of people in this chapter. He's talking about the just. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Those that have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says there's another group of people that draw back unto perdition. He's not saying that the just can draw back unto perdition. Notice, he makes the distinction, verse 39. says, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. There's two different groups of people. And this warning is given to those that have not yet placed their faith in Christ. They're standing at the door. They may have even made a public profession. This is where sometimes we have to be careful. They may have even made a public profession. Now, somebody's going to say, preacher, how will I know whether someone's truly been saved or not? Here's the good news. It's not your job to know whether someone's truly been saved or not. Where we run into trouble is trying to figure out ways that we can look at our loved ones and family members and have some kind of acid test to say, this is saved, that is not. 
Now, that's not to say that we won't bear fruit. We will bear fruit. But it is to say this, that at the end of the day, it's not up to you or me to know. It's between them and God. And Paul does not, I believe it's Paul, you can believe whoever you want, but Paul does not take for granted their spiritual condition. He offers this warning. Notice the warning expressed in verse 26, 27. He says, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now, notice he describes this sin as being willful. Only one other time you're going to find this word in your Bible, and it's whenever it talks about, and I believe it's First Peter, how that uh, we, the shepherds of the flock ought to shepherd willingly, willingly. And it denotes, and I promise you this, nobody accidentally pastors a church. You don't find yourself accidentally pastoring a church. You don't accidentally wake up in the middle of the night to go to the hospital. You don't accidentally go through the heartbreak of seeing people turn around and leave. You don't accidentally pray and, and weep over people and be broken over. You don't accidentally get up and preach the Word of God. Something you do, not by sudden impulse, but by settled intention. What he's saying is this. If we sin willfully, when he describes sin there, he's not describing the act of sin, but he is describing the lifestyle of sin. And he's saying if you have come to the cross and you turn around and walk away, he says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. He's describing what we would call an apostate. This is somebody, and, and somebody's going to no doubt ask themselves or ask me afterwards, Preacher, does that mean if a person turns away from the gospel they can never be saved? No, that's not what it means. That means if a person turns away from the gospel, there's no place of salvation except Calvary. If they won't turn to Calvary, they won't be saved. He's not saying that this person can never be saved. He's saying that if they won't come to Christ, they'll never be saved. He's saying the sacrifices are done with. God gave one sacrifice once for all. If you won't come to Christ, there's no more sacrifices. There's nothing else. There's nowhere else. He says this is a deliberate sin, but he says it's a damning sin. He says in verse number 27, all this left is a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He speaks the consequences of this sin. In other words, let me say it in no uncertain terms. It is Christ or hell. Those are the only two choices. There's nothing else. If you won't come to Christ, you'll die in your sins and go to hell. If a person doesn't want to die and go to hell, the only way they can escape that, that fearful indignation, the only way that they can uh, escape that fiery indignation, that fearful looking for of judgment, which shall devour the ad, the only way is by Christ. That's the only way. He gives, uh, he uh, expresses this warning, but then he explains a little bit of it in verse 28 through 31. In verse 28, he gives an Old Testament example of sin. And he says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So, in other words, God gave his law. If the children of Israel said, I won't walk in that law, then they were cast from the camp. They were stoned to death. They had only two choices, either submit under the law or die in their sins. That was their only two choices. Notice verse 29. He brings this into the New Testament realm. He says, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, meaning set apart. I'll say a word about that in a moment. An unholy thing. And hath done respite unto the Spirit of grace. 
So in other words, he's saying in the Old Testament, if you wouldn't walk in the law, you were physically killed. In the New Testament, if you reject God's revelation of his son, you'll spiritually die. And he describes three things. He says, first off, rejecting the Son of God. He describes it this way. He says, trodden underfoot, the Son of God. In other words, the image is this. You're on your way to hell, and Jesus has laid down his life in front of you, and you've stepped over top of him so that you can die in your sins. That's how God views it. Trodden underfoot, the Son of God. Walked on it like it was nothing, like it was common dirt. And the sad truth is this, whether they show outward rebellion and disdain or not, the sinner that rejects Christ is doing that very thing. Christ is the roadblock on their way to hell, and they've stepped over him, they've trodden him underfoot. The second thing is refusing the salvation of God. He said, hath counted the blood of the covenant, that's of Jesus Christ, wherewith he was sanctified. Now, what does it mean when it says he was sanctified? I guess there's a lot of you know, opposing views. Some could say that when it says he, it's speaking of Christ. I don't necessarily think that's so. I believe it's speaking about those that have made a public profession and been set apart. He's going to talk as he gets to the end of the chapter about those that have made a public profession and all the things that they've suffered. But those in that day that had turned their back on Judaism and made a public profession, they had been separated from the camp of Israel. They had been treated as outsiders. In fact, it's said that to this day in Orthodox Jewish families in some parts of the world and in Israel in particular, that if a person professes a faith other than Judaism, that the family will actually buy a casket, bury an empty casket, and will treat that person as though they're dead. They see him walking down the street. They're, they're not even supposed to acknowledge that they exist. And he says, you understand that in making that profession, if you turn back, if you don't believe on Christ, if you make that public profession, but there's no substance in your heart that you're taking that blood of the covenant and you're counting it an unworthy thing. Then he describes a third thing. He says, and hath done despite under the spirit of grace. In other words, God has reached out his hand to us and we've smacked it away. Said, I'm not interested. This is how the apostate is described. Notice not only the seriousness of the crime, but the solemnity of the consequences. Verse 30 and 31. He says there is a formal sense of judgment. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. In other words, what he's saying is this, that God has already spoken that those that reject Christ are under under condemnation. This concept of we're going to get to heaven and get to the gates, and there's going to be a big set of weights up there, you know, big big uh, balances up there, and they're going to pile our good works against our bad works, and hopefully one will outweigh the other, and old St. Peter, he's going to let us in. You've read that in the funny papers. You ain't read that in your Bible. God has already pronounced that he that believeth not is condemned already. God has already said vengeance is his. But then we notice it is a fearful judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, rejecting Christ is not without consequences. He's a living God, and he's going to exact punishment upon those that reject the Lord. You know what that's like? That's like that fella that is going and he's, he's renewing that loan every year. That's like if, uh, if the person, the guarantor of the loan, if the endorser of the note came up and said, hey, won't you let me pay this? And he said, no, thank you. I'm not interested. All the debt would fall on him. It's not a question of whether he has debt or not. (laughs) He's got debt. It's just a question of whether he'll let someone else pay the note for him. If you reject that one that will pay the note, 
There's no more money left. There's nowhere else to turn. It falls on you and to the debtor's prison you go. In the same way, there is a fearful judgment coming. Let me give you these final thoughts and we'll be done tonight. There is not only a, uh, a, a word of uh, welcome, a tremendous word of welcome and a terrible word of warning, but he ends with a timely word of wisdom for believers. Verse number 32, he says that these believers should think about the past that they have. And he speaks first off of the persecution that once assailed them. Verse 32, he says, But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye also became companions of them that were so used. Now, again, he's speaking, I believe, to to those that had believed, but I believe he's also speaking to those that are at the door and they're struggling with whether they should believe on Christ, whether they should turn back. They may have even already made a public profession. The very fact that they're listening to gospel preaching is uh, something that would be anathema amongst their religious family. I believe he's saying this. Think about what it's already cost you. Think about what it's already cost you. And as he exhorts those of us that have placed our faith in Christ, he is saying, think about what it has already cost you to live for Christ. Don't give up and quit living for the Lord. He speaks the reason for their persecution in verse number 32. He says there was a great fight of afflictions. Why? Because you were illuminated. Because you knew the truth. As soon as people began to be saved after Pentecost, Judaism rose up in hate and vitriol against the infant church. You'll find a lot of examples in the book of Acts. Peter and John were arrested. The apostles were beaten. James was beheaded. Stephen was stoned to death. And Saul of Tarsus was let off of his leash to destroy, imprison, kill, and malign any and all that placed their faith in Christ. It was not an easy thing to the people that were reading this letter that we hold in our hands. It was not an easy thing to be a Christian in that day they lived in. They had given all of this, and they had gone through all of this, because they had been illuminated. But then he shows the reality of it, and this is encouraging. He says, partly while you, whilst, I'll say it right here in a second, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used, for ye had compassion on me in my bonds. That word gazing stock is, is interesting. The, the word is theaterized. We get, obviously, our word theater from it. And the idea is the Hebrews writer is saying, hey, you were put on the stage and everybody saw what you did when you made a profession in Christ. And in so you showed the faith of Christ to sinners around you. Has it ever dawned on you that if you give up living for God, it's going to affect more than just you? Folks are watching you. They're watching me. I've often thought to myself, what would happen if I just gave up? If I just gave up? I just said I'm tired of it and walked away. And there's, listen, I've got a million reasons to never walk away from serving God. God's been too good to me. But not the least of those is the fact of the people that would be crushed by seeing someone turn that they had maybe had confidence in, maybe listened to preach, maybe had prayed with them, maybe had, 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 uh, had taken encouragement from. I've been on the stage, brethren. I've had a testimony, and it's not been perfect, but it is a testimony. And I need to consider that when things get tough, because I'm not in this thing alone. He says, you've shown the faith of Christ to sinners, but then he says, you've shared the faith of Christ with saints. Notice it again, he says, you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me 
in my bonds. Paul says, you've helped me. You've helped me. We'll never realize the folks we've helped by standing for Christ. We'll never realize. There's no telling. I'll tell you this. There's been times in my life when I've been discouraged and I've looked at saints. Some of them still with us. Some of us gone home to the Lord. And listen, I don't mean great preachers. I mean church members. I mean people I've pastored. And looked at and thought, man, if they can go on for God, I can go on for God. If they can go through what they're going through, I can go through what I'm going through. If they can stand fast, I can stand fast. And he says, you need to consider how God has already been working in your life. He says they need to consider uh, the persecution that once assailed them, but then consider the persuasion that once assured them. He says concerning earthly loss in verse 34, he says, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Ever been a time in your life whenever you'd give to the Lord and you'd say, it's just money? He says of these believers, there was a time when you lost everything and you took it joyfully. It's funny, as we get more stable in life and as we learn to not live week to week and as we get a few zeros in the bank, a lot of times that stuff becomes precious to us and we forget what it was to be like the widow woman that gave those two mites the last of her living. We forget what it was to see God answer our prayers and know what it is to live by faith day by day. He says, don't ever forget that concerning earthly loss, you didn't mind it because of that which concerned eternal gain. He says, you knew, you knew that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So he speaks about some things they should think about about the past. Then he gives them two things about the present they should think about. Verses 35 and 36. In verse 35, he talks about the danger of wavering. He says, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath a great recompense of reward. Now, there's a blessing in boldness. God will bless our boldness in Christ. But there's a blessedness to boldness in and of itself. And we're losing this in this day that we live in. Have you ever noticed how uncomfortable it makes you to hear people that have opposite opinions than you? We live in a day where through the Internet and social media and cable TV, we can create a little bubble where no one ever says anything but what we agree with. And I feel like there's a lot of problems with that. It's not necessarily that my horizons need to be broadened, but sometimes it's that my heart needs to be emboldened. And I need to know what it is to stand in opposition of falsehood and lies and deceit. And I need to know what it is to stand when it's not easy to stand. Boldness has a quality in and of itself. And he says, don't cast that away. You're going to need it. <laughs> Don't listen, don't don't lose that steel in your nerve. Don't lose that that backbone of iron because you're going to need it. He says there's a danger of wavering. Verse 36, he says there's a danger of weakening. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. He's going to go on in the next chapter to talk about a lot of folks that exemplified this. And I think immediately about Abraham, who when he was, what, 75 years old, God gave him a promise of Isaac. It wasn't until he was, what, right at a hundred or a hundred that he received the promised son. Twenty-five years or so, he had to live just on faith. Just on faith. And listen, in our lives, we need, we need to understand that just because we serve God, that don't always mean it's going to be easy and that don't always mean that things are going to work out how we want, when we want. We need to be willing to stand even when it's not easy to do so. And then he reminds them that they need to think about the prospect of the future. Verses 37 through 39. I like this, verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. 
He says, listen, as the road gets tough, don't forget about the coming return of the Lord. Now, think about it. When he wrote this, it was a little while, and it's been 2,000 years. I hear all the time. We're talking about on the way in tonight, Jesus is coming soon. Listen, people have been saying that since Peter's day. You say, preacher, does that mean we shouldn't believe it? No, that means we should believe it all the more. We're one day closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus than we were yesterday. Take hope in that. Take encouragement in that. Listen, it's easy to sit around and watch the world burn and get to feeling like God's fell off of his throne. Take courage that Jesus is coming soon. He speaks of the coming return of the Lord, but then he speaks of the constant review of our lives that needs to take place. Considering that fact, he says, now the just shall live by faith. This phrase finds its place in your Bible four times. Once, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, first time it's mentioned. Three times in the New Testament, you'll find this uh, phrase, once in Romans, once in Galatians, and once here. And in each of them, a different portion of it has an emphasis. In Romans, the just is emphasized. The just shall live by faith. In Galatians, the just shall live by faith. The shall live is emphasized. And here in Hebrews, it is emphasized that the just shall live by faith. He gives to us an abysmal contrast that he describes. It says, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now, again, he's not suggesting your choice is either go on for the Lord or lose your salvation and die in your sins. He's already said you're perfected forever. But he's saying this, he's saying there's two kinds of professors, two kinds of folks that profess Christ, those that have truly believed. And those that have truly believed, they're called to live by faith, not by feeling, not by, not by sight, not by ease and comfort, but by faith. Says the other group, they're the ones that when things get tough, they turn and go back. But he says in verse 39, he gives the absolute confidence that we ought to display. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. You know what we ought to walk away saying tonight? Hey, I don't know what kind you are, but I know what kind I am. I don't know what kind those folks are, but I know what kind I am. I'm not of that kind that draw back unto perdition. I'm of that kind that believed in saving the soul. And as such, God has called me to live by faith, not by sight. Things won't always be easy, but I'm going to go on and serve God anyway because God's worthy of it. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer tonight. Next week, we're going to go on, by the way, to a big uh, shift, a, a change. The first part of this book in the first two chapters deals with the superior person of Christ. Then from chapter 3 down to where we just ended at chapter 10 deals with the superior provisions of Calvary. Next week, we're going to go on to the final part of the book of Hebrews that deals with the superior principles of Christianity. I hope you keep coming back. If you've got any questions, come find me. But let's close in a word of prayer tonight.